Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello and welcome to Politico's 2016 Nerdcast, where we give you the story behind the stories and geek out on this amazing circus of an election. It's Thursday, May 12th. I'm Kristen Roberts, Politico's national editor, and here's where we are. Donald Trump is again at war with the Republican National Committee. He's talking about vice presidents, or he's not, but we know who's in his head. We take a look at just how weak Hillary Clinton is. Bernie Sanders won't leave her alone, and it's setting up to be a pretty bad nightmare in the general election. And then we're going to talk about the polls. They were certainly right in the primary when looking at Donald Trump. And now, again, we're going to question whether they're right this time in showing an incredibly tight race with Hillary Clinton. Sit back, listen, and I hope you enjoy it. I'm sitting here with, again, my favorite people, Ken Vogel. Hello. Eli Stogels. Hello. Charlie Matessi and senior politics editor. Hi, Kristen. Hi. While we're meeting, there are some other people meeting. It's Donald Trump and Paul Ryan, and it's coming as Donald Trump seems to think that he should be running the GOP, not just commanding the loyalty of the voters, but getting to run the party apparatus. So, Ken, tell me what's happening in the war between Donald Trump and Ryan's Priebus. Yeah, it's a, it's a struggle over control, not of the philosophy and the platform of the Republican Party. That's the conversation between Paul Ryan and Donald Trump. There's a different conversation between Donald Trump and his aides, who are really the ones handling this, and the operatives who run the Republican Party. That's about the tactics and the infrastructure and, frankly, the money behind the Republican Party. And that's a tug of war that I think is going to continue here for a while. We might not even see any resolution I understand from some of the Trump folks that they actually want to blacklist some of the firms that did work for uh, the anti-Trump, the never-Trump movement and keep them from, from winning these lucrative contracts from the RNC. The RNC Victory Fund is traditionally has been the whole ballgame in a presidential year for top-tier consultants. You can run a Senate campaign, you can run a House campaign, you can run a super PAC, but the RNC is where the action and where the money is, and that's where we see a big uh, a big struggle for control. Well, this isn't the first time we've said the word blacklist. No, one of the interesting things is the Trump people, you know, you go back to last year and they say, well, I, were we actually going to win? I mean, there's a lot of people that think that Trump had no idea that he could actually win the nomination. And so they get to this point sort of unprepared, thinking, oh, the RNC now, we can just plug into their infrastructure. I mean, I heard last week from some Trump people, or for a couple weeks going back into the primary when this was looking like it was going to a contested convention, that we're going to build out our communications team, we're really you know, beefing up the campaign, building out our bandwidth. And that's all been put on hold, at least temporarily, because the perception was that 
oh, well, now that we're the nominee, the presumptive nominee, we can just plug into what the RNC has. They have a 15-person communication shop. Why should we go start to hire more people and hire surrogates? And I think that's what's happening now is the Trump people are coming to this realization that maybe what the RNC has is not you know, so easily adaptable or something they can just co-opt and take over, especially given all the tension over all the things from contracts to the convention on down. And it's not just that it's not easily adaptable, though that certainly is an issue. It's also that the RNC isn't as great in as great financial shape as perhaps some of the Trump people had thought after this initial meeting that we reported on exclusively here, uh, where they talked about the finances earlier this week. I understand that some of the Trump sources, uh, rather some of the Trump aides, left that meeting thinking that, oh, the RNC is, is not really as robust financially as we had hoped. And now, is just, it that the, Trump, the, campaign, RNC had hoped. Yeah, that's it that the right. Trump campaign thought they could run a primary on the cheap but was going to tap into Republican Party resources for the general? That's absolutely what it is. They thought that uh, they were getting, I mean, we, we've talked about this. They Why should they spend money when they're winning all these primaries? Uh, and everyone kept telling them, you know what, you're not going to be able to run the same kind of fly by the seat of the pants skeleton campaign in the general election. Their thinking was, well, that's when we'll just rely on the RNC and we'll just co-op the RNC. In fact, I understood that they wanted to uh, offload some of their payroll into the RNC. Now, some of this stuff does happen when when there's a merger. These between, are actually fair expectations, yeah, aren't they? To some extent, I think the degree to which they wanted to do it was exceptional. As frankly, was the degree to which they were able to get through the primary without spending a whole lot of money. But if you look at just the numbers, I mean, we don't have all you know. As is always the problem with these FEC reports, we don't have real time numbers. Numbers. But if you look at the end of March, the RNC had just $16 million in hand in their bank account, nearly $2 million in outstanding debt. That's just a fraction of what it had at similar points in the 2008 and 2012 cycles. Now, the RNC says, well, we have less on hand because we've already invested more in, uh, in our political operations in, in our states. But I think still for the Trump folks coming in, it was kind of a shock they didn't have more in the bank. Well, and the irony, and this is almost too obvious to even point out here, but you know Trump needs the money. Why don't they have the money? Because of Trump. Because Trump kept winning in this unconventional way right. and throwing the primary into total chaos. I mean, what the RNC doesn't want to talk about, but what everybody knows is that all of the donors, the establishment money that generally has funded the RNC's infrastructure and the Victory Program, so much of that money has sat on the sidelines because when Jeb went out and Rubio went out and the, the candidates, th this primary came down to Cruz and Trump. There are a lot of people that just said, well, I mean, I'm going to hold my money because I don't want to just set my money on fire. And, and even and, more than that, Trump has done nothing to build a fundraising operation to reach out to those people so that even if those people wanted to come on board, it wouldn't be as easy as them just snap it open their checkbook and stroke it a $33,400 check. I mean, he has no finance operation around the country, no bundlers. I talked to a former RNC finance chair yesterday who uh, was remarking on just this and saying that they're talking about this figure, $1 billion, as what they want to raise in hard money for the general election. He said, good luck with that if you're, if you're starting from zero right now.
The financing, though, isn't the only thing that they're talking about today, right? And in fact, it's probably not even the main thing. I mean, you open telling us that they're going to be talking with Paul Ryan about the platform and the policy positions. And you're walking into this meeting with a man who is widely regarded as, um, you know, the future of the party, right? This is a man that some people really thought might run for president a year and a half ago and then didn't. So what is that meeting going to look like? And what's the takeaway? I mean, vast disagreements on policy that probably are not bridgeable. We're talking about immigration. Uh, we're talking about trade. Uh, we're talking about, uh, you know, a, a foreign policy where Donald Trump has staked out to the extent that he has. And this is one of the areas where he actually has staked out a bit of policy, a much more non-interventionist policy than the traditional Republican orthodoxy. So I think we'll see some conversation about that. Paul Ryan has signaled that he doesn't expect Donald Trump to adopt to adapt to the uh, republic, the pure Republican orthodoxy, and come around to his way of thinking. He doesn't want him to. He said that there's room for disagreement. So you see some effort by Paul Ryan to kind of uh, extend an olive branch and 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 uh, point to some ways in which they can coexist without totally agreeing. I just don't think Trump really is going to sit here and fight Paul Ryan on policy. I mean, this is a guy who, yeah, he's thrown out some controversial uh, controversial policy ideas, the Muslim ban, the build the wall, all these things. But, you know, he's saying just in the last 24 hours, oh, the Muslim ban is just a suggestion. I mean, he's so wishy-washy and it's malleable not just that. on Look policy. He's doing on tax. Exactly. And so, is he going to sit there and get bogged down in a fight over policy or the platform? No. The one thing that I do hear from Trump people that he is like unusually interested in the details of is what do you think? The convention, the big TV spectacle that's happening in July. That's his show. That's what he wants to control. Right now, Paul Ryan is supposed to be the chairman of that convention. Yes, that's sort of an honorary role, but it's also a very powerful one. Donald Trump's people this week told me, you think we're going to let Paul Ryan decide who all the speakers are and bring in speakers who may not be on Team Trump, that may be kind of, you know, speaking out of the other side of their mouth and, and, and delivering messages that run counter to what the nominee wants to put out there that sort of undercut the nominee? They said, not on your life. They have crazy ideas about how to turn this convention into even more of a spectacle and a, a TV and a media event uh, than we've seen at a convention. I mean, when Obama you know, put his speech outside, everybody thought, oh, this is different. I mean, you ain't seen nothing compared to what the Trump people are thinking. They have grand ideas, Trump does, about how to maybe bring in and, and reveal the VP nominee at the convention. That's the chatter right now, isn't it? Uh, that's what I heard. They said that is the, like one of the few moments for drama in the convention week. Why would we spoil that by releasing this name earlier than the convention. I mean, that is a list that is being very tightly uh, held by the Trump people, the, the Trump sources that, that we talked to. You know, mine this week have said, I, you know, I, that's, I, I can't go there. Anybody, I mean, any of that gets out, they'll be in big trouble. And so, yeah, there's speculation. We that's know the That's the names. one thing that's not leaky about this campaign. Right now it is. But I mean, that's what, that's something they really are talking about. How do we make a splash with this? I mean, Donald Trump has found a way to make a splash almost daily on this campaign, but they are really looking at this convention as a TV event. Used to be all the networks didn't want to cover it, right, because it was such a loser. And in this election, I mean, we have countdown clocks on cable TV counting down to an hour-long meeting between Paul Ryan and Donald Trump. I mean, Well, that's this a is, statement about the TV station. It's a statement about a lot of things. But, like, this is one of these campaigns where 
this convention is suddenly a huge event and Trump is going to milk that for all I think just lifting up for a second, I think what's really clear to me over the last couple of weeks is that Donald Trump's campaign is recognizing that they really need a unified Republican Party, that they can't walk into the general the way they walked out of the primary. And so they're actually taking steps that put him in a position to campaign against Hillary Clinton. How much of that sentiment goes into his decision about the Veep? Oh, I think a lot. I mean, that's, uh, you know, he, he's, he's already signaled that despite the fact that his campaign has been completely unconventional in so many senses that he would look for a conventional politician. Uh, conventional may be the wrong word, but a politician who has deep experience in Washington with some of the sort of mores of, uh, of the town and of the way that uh, Congress works so that he could advance an agenda in Congress. And that's sort of a reasonable and, and strangely self-aware position for Trump to take, essentially acknowledging that he would have some shortcomings coming in uh, as, as a, a rookie politician, a rookie, a rookie president, never before having held office, uh, trying to advance any policy proposals uh, that, that he would need to be able to supplement his, his the offset his deficiency in that area. Well, let's talk about some of these names. What are, what are the specific people on Donald Trump's mind? Well, we heard a little uh, Bob Corker uh, balloon floated. Uh, our, our own Mike Allen was perhaps instrumental in that. Uh, other names that we've heard discussed, folks that I, I think probably Trump wants, but who are uh, cool to the idea, Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio has evolved a little bit. He obviously had a lot of bad things to say about Trump during the campaign. Since the campaign, He's, he's kind of warmed a little bit. He says he'll support him at least. He still says he's not going to, uh, uh, not, would not take a, the, the VP slot. But nonetheless, he, he would be an ideal candidate for him, both demographically, being Hispanic, geographically, uh, being from Florida. And I think uh, uh, policy-wise, he, he has some serious foreign policy bona fides. Uh, folks who have who appear to be not just amenable, but perhaps even jockeying for it. Newt Gingrich, of course, uh, the, the, the failed uh, 2012 campaign that left him, you know, frankly, a little bit of a joke in Washington. Nonetheless, he's an early endorser. Uh, Chris Christie, another early endorser. Chris Christie I, is not on that list. I have to wonder. I mean, the, it, Trump named him the head of the transition team. It seems a little mutually exclusive with being uh, <laughs> vice president. But it wasn't for Dick Cheney. Right. There you go. I, I, there are a lot of names on this list. I mean, the name apparently the, the list is apparently in Trump's head, whatever the heck that means. But you know, the name. I mean, Corker is interesting. Uh, Portman is interesting. I think Kasich is still in the conversation because there were back channel conversations between the Trump and Kasich folks going back several months. So I think that has to be um, you know a possibility. I mean, I think there's there's Mary Fallon, the Oklahoma governor, the who said that she uh, would love to be you know to talk to Trump and possibly be considered. Uh, this morning, Trump's talking about Jan Brewer, the old Arizona governor, about how great she is. I mean, you can't imagine he would go there and and exact the already sort of catastrophic problems he has with Hispanic voters, but it's Donald Trump. You never know. And, you know, and then you've got Joni Ernst, Tom Tillis. You've got these freshman senators. One of the things that I know he's looking for is somebody who has some Washington experience, either governing experience or legislating experience, but who hasn't been here forever, who hasn't been sort of tainted by a career in Washington. Joni Ernst would fit that bill, but she too has said, thanks, but no thanks. I mean, that is what you have to say at this point. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean definitively she will never consider if it's offered. Um, but 
you know, that's part of the, the thing here. Trump may have this wish list, but as he is struggling to unify the party, I mean, that mirrors the sort of struggles to convince a lot of these people that it's a risk worth taking to be on his ticket. But inside his team, don't they think they need a woman on that ticket to go after Hillary Clinton? Uh, you would think they... Are, they are aware that, you know, the idea of putting another old white guy, as one source put it, when I asked about Newt Gingrich, they're aware that that does not check a lot of boxes that are beneficial to them. But how I mean, many they women, got that demographic how many women are out? I mean, Nikki Haley would be great, right? But Nikki, ha- is Nikki Haley... Susanna Martinez, governor of uh, New Mexico, Hispanic, and uh, uh, a, uh, a governor. Uh, so... Uh, heard her name as well. She's also said some uh, less than uh, positive things about Donald Trump and his immigration stance. But, uh, you know, while we're just throwing names out there, I think she'd be one that would be worth considering. All right, Charlie, talk to us about the Democratic race. We just came out of a primary where Hillary Clinton really underperformed in West Virginia. Yeah, uh, it was a pretty amazing result when you dive down into the county level results. Um, One of the things that... uh, was most interesting about it was it wasn't unexpected that she would lose West Virginia. Everyone figured she would lose West Virginia, but the way she lost West Virginia, I think really was eye-catching. Hillary Clinton went from winning all 55 counties in 2008 to losing every one of them in 2016. She went from winning 67% against Barack Obama in 2008, crushing him in West Virginia, to getting crushed herself by Bernie Sanders in West Virginia. Um, And one of the most amazing things I saw in the results was how she performed in coal country. In 2008, she ran very well in in, uh, coal country against Barack Obama. And uh, as everyone knows, there was lots of speculation about whether there was a racial component to to that or not. Um, She won in one county that um, is pretty well known. If you've seen the movie Matewan and uh, sort of a, it's it's a, a, a county of, uh, legend in the Cold Wars, uh, Mingo County, known as Bloody Mingo County. She won that county, and we're talking about the heart of coal country, 88% to 8% against, wow. against Barack Obama in 2008. She lost that county this time around, and not by a little bit. She, Bernie Sanders won 48% there. She won 21% there. In fact, she got beat by a guy nobody's even heard of. A guy named Paul Farrell came in second place. He is a local lawyer from West Virginia in Mingo County. So it, this, it's the reversal of fortune that really stands out in West Virginia. Is that it, a statement about her and her position on coal and these things that she said, or is it something else? I think it's a couple things. Uh, first of all, it is a reflection of 2008. She didn't have any ties to the Obama administration. Uh, in 2016, she did. And it's hard to overstate just how unpopular the Obama administration is in West Virginia. It is just despised there. And uh, I think particularly in uh, coal country in southern West Virginia, you know, the whole state is gripped by this idea that uh, Washington has launched a war on coal. And, you know, they're on the losing side of it right now. And what's really hurt, uh, you know, even maybe even deeper than the ties to the administration was the comment that Hillary Clinton made in March at a town hall in Ohio. Uh, this was, you know, widely played in ads. In fact, there was a uh, Supreme Court candidate in West Virginia who won a contested open seat who literally, this is a Supreme Court race, ran an ad that had Hillary's remarks on coal in it. And what Hillary said was, Clinton said, uh, you know, to paraphrase something about we're going to put coal miners and the coal industry out of business. And that really resonated and uh, and hit a vein in, in West Virginia. Now, uh, in fairness to Hillary Clinton, it, it wasn't as callous and, and cavalier as it might sound. She didn't mean to say, 
oh, you know, we're going to put them all out of business. She was saying it in the context of the transition to clean energy. But even so, just to have not seen the landmine in phrasing it that way, you Absolutely. would never talk about, I mean, you could pick almost any demographic, any group, any constituency in the country, you would never use that kind of language in talking about the thing that they cared about most. And just the clumsiness of that remark lent itself to lots of ads and lots of criticism. And she I think did, she did at the end of the day, for it, but doesn't matter. Uh, it's a like, little too late. Yeah, you don't put the she apology in the line. taken out of context. None of that matters. Nobody, right. nobody writes in the ad, uh, Clinton later said it was a misstatement, you know, or Clinton later apologized. It just has the line in quotes, and uh, she was confronted about it at a town hall there. Honest political ads. Yeah, so uh, there are none. And so I think at the end of the day, that's really what what impacted her West Virginia performance. And it just feeds into this nagging, nagging narrative of her weakness. And what does that say about how she's going to do next week in Oregon? Yeah, I mean, the, the calendar doesn't uh, look kindly on her for the next couple of weeks, at least in Oregon. Uh, it's shaping up to be another Sanders-friendly state. It's uh, The demographics uh, look good for him, but it's also a, a very uh, liberal state. It's probably, you know, in many ways, it performs like Washington State, where Bernie ran very well. It's anchored by Portland, where, which uh, is sort of a, you know, a citadel of, of Bernie mania. And if you look at the donations, at least, out of Portland, it, I think it ranks third in terms of per capita contributions to Bernie. Sanders. Uh, so he's, he's put together some massive rallies there. So I think the expectation, and everyone would agree that uh, Sanders is favored strongly there. Kentucky is more interesting. It's the other state that's voting next week. And Kentucky was thought to be something of a Clinton stronghold until recently uh, because it's, it's conservative culturally. Uh, it is a place where the Clintons personally have long ties. Uh, Bill Clinton ran well there. It would seem to be a state that's pretty, you know, uh, you know, lines up well for Hillary Clinton. Sanders didn't pay much attention to it, but what we saw recently last week was the Clinton administration or the Clinton campaign. Too soon. Yeah, exactly. Uh, apologies to the Sanders folks. The Clinton campaign went up on the air and made some ad reservations there. And, and you know, that's a, this is after being dark for a couple of weeks uh, in, in primaries and not buying any ads at all. And I think that's a signal that they see something happening. Something is in the bloodstream there that doesn't, uh, that, that frightens them a little bit. And I think my strong suspicion is it has a lot to do with the coal comment because what happens in West Virginia also happens in eastern Kentucky. I mean, we're used to these artificial political boundaries. You know, there's a line and it's drawn between West Virginia and Kentucky. But as people live for real, that line doesn't exist. Southern West Virginia is essentially eastern Kentucky, and they heard the coal remark too. And That's can- why I really consider you from Jersey. <laughs> I will never concede that. I consider you New Jerseyans part of greater Philadelphia. <laughs> this is pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> but the other funny thing about Kentucky is that I think – Lots of folks know that Eastern Kentucky is very heavy into coal production, but there's also coal production in Western Kentucky too. So when you add it all together, all of a sudden you begin to see how Bernie might thrive in a state like Kentucky. Uh, there are progressives in Louisville. There are the coal producing areas he could do well in. And I think ultimately what will determine Hillary Clinton's fate is uh, the African-American population in, Kentucky, in Louisville in particular. Uh, there's probably double the African-American population in Kentucky than in West Virginia. And that could save the day for Hillary Clinton. All right. But I got to ask, like, to what end? I mean, we've written, everybody's written that there's no chance Bernie Sanders can clinch this nomination. He's holding on. Why are we even still talking about this? What does this say to us about how Hillary Clinton walks into a general election? Or were we all wrong that he can't somehow steal this? 
I think it doesn't reflect well on her, the fact that she can't finish Bernie Sanders off. Uh, and I think we are now beginning to see all the weaknesses, all the seams in her candidacy uh, right now. I think uh, ultimately, does it matter in terms of the nomination? No, she's still going to win the nomination. The, the delegate deficit is insurmountable at this point. But I do think uh, it gives us some some hints and clues about uh how the fight is going to be waged in the fall. And I think if you take a look, not just at West Virginia, but all through uh, Appalachia, if you look at uh, Appalachia, which actually runs from the deep south all the way up to the southern tier of New York, uh, Donald Trump is extremely strong in that region. He won the bulk of those counties there. And people often think, well, you know, West Virginia is going to go red, and, and why does that matter? And Tennessee, the, the mountains of Tennessee, why does that matter in a presidential election? Uh, the mountains of South Carolina or even Georgia, why do they matter? They're going to go red. But what's often forgotten is Appalachia also includes eastern Ohio. Mm -hmm. It also includes western Pennsylvania. It also includes western Virginia, western North Carolina. These are key swing states. And if Donald Trump really resonates in those areas and Hillary Clinton Clinton can't at least hold her own, maybe it has an impact at the margins in these key swing states. Oh, you just named the three swing states that Donald Trump is, you know, banking on winning. That's his general election strategy. It's not out west. It's not states with Hispanic populations. It's states that touch Appalachia and the Rust Belt, Ohio, Pennsylvania, North Carolina. Those are places where exactly, as you said, he is supposed to have resonance with the sort of populist blue-collar Donald Trump, the blue-collar champion, but that's the pitch. And these are the voters that we've seen rally behind him in the primary. Can you reiterate, too, that movie reference, that, that arcane movie reference for those of us under 70? What was that again? <laughs> it's actually it's a terrific John Sayles movie called Mate One. It's about sort of the uh, coal country wars at the early part of the century. It's amazing uh, what happened down there in that part of the world. I trust your movie, Rex. I just I didn't catch it the first time. I like to throw in a movie every week. First came Gladiator. Now came Mate One. Uh, we'll I see can't wait. Next. I can't wait for next week now. Yeah. All right. So this is exactly the right time to bring in Scott Bland, who is editor of Campaign Pro. Hello, Scott. Hey, Kristen. Hello, pod people. Let's talk about these numbers. Let's get it back to the polling. Why are the numbers that are coming out of Florida, for example, so wildly different poll from poll? Yeah, th this, this is a really interesting development this week. You know, just as we're really starting to transition into the general election and, you know, some of those states that Charlie was just talking about, the Ohio's and Pennsylvania's, we saw some Quinnipiac polls coming out with uh, some very tight general election numbers. Uh, but in Quinnipiac also came out with a poll in Florida that was gaining uh, a lot of attention earlier this week because it was just so wildly different from some of the other polls we'd seen there recently. Uh, Quinnipiac had Clinton leading Trump 43-42 in Florida. Uh, and a, a poll that had been in the field for part of the same time from a, a business group down there, the Associated Industries of Florida, had shown Clinton up 49-36, you know, based on uh, big popularity with uh, Hispanics, with women, um, and some of the, you know, growing population trends down there. And so that's a 12-point swing there from plus 13 to Clinton to plus 1. And it really kicked off, I think, the, the next edition that we all get to live through for the next six months of the polling wars that we saw in 2012, where both sides are going to be, you know, accusing of, of skewing. They're going to be cherry picking the results. They're going, to, they're going to be looking at each and every one of these polls and trying to pick apart everything that, that doesn't look quite right for, for their candidate or, or from the perspective of the independent analysis 
analysts, you know, some of these demographic numbers underpinning these polls. Uh, it's going to be a long six months unpacking these as, as Clinton and Trump kind of roll their way toward Doesn't November. Doesn't Trump complicate polling in general? Sure. And, you know, we saw that during the primary, right? We saw, you know, it's easy to forget now. Donald Trump has essentially led the Republican primary polls continuously from July 2015, right after he got in, to the point when he locked up the nomination. Uh, but there were a lot of very, very cogent and compelling arguments about why those numbers weren't necessarily real. And except that they were, except that they were. So now we find the 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 difference is that we now find ourselves in a situation where, with most of the polls at this point of Trump versus Clinton, do show Clinton ahead. So now he th those could move. There's a lot of reasons why those could move over the next six months. You know, it's still very early. Um, well, let me stop you there because they show Clinton ahead, but Bernie Sanders, the man who won't go away, has an argument that's resonating with me right now. He's saying that in the head-to-head -head comparisons, he's doing better. And when you look at the numbers, he is doing better. How are you reading that? Well, I think there, there are a few uh, different ways to read that. You know, obviously, the Democratic primary has been very divisive. And uh, Charlie, I'd be interested what you think about this. But the, you know, Sanders has really not faced the kind of fire that would hurt him in a general election that Clinton has. Yeah, I would raise the point, though. I mean, we hear that a lot about Bernie, that, uh, well, he, you know, nobody's really targeted him. Never, no one's ever blown him up. He's never had a tough race in Vermont. But here's the thing. What if we are at this unique moment in uh, American political history where all the rules have been thrown out? I mean, you can make a pretty compelling argument that that's the case and that it is legitimate that there is such a hunger out there from a departure from tradition that someone as non-traditional as someone who bills himself as a democratic socialist could actually win. That that's how disaffected, that's how angry and cynical and frustrated and pissed off people are. Because when you look at Bernie, there's the one thing you have to acknowledge is the authenticity. And I think that's reflected in all the polls. He, he doesn't get, he's never dragged down by oppo research. He's never dragged down by anything because he is so such a unique, one of a kind creature who doesn't have the baggage of any other politician. So if you, were, right, if you were ever going to have an election in which you could break from the past. Wouldn't it be this one? And couldn't he be the kind of candidate who did it? That is a good point. That is such a good point. And it's that sentiment that I think the Hillary Clinton people and her allies are not owning. They're not reflecting that, that feeling among voters, the thing that we're seeing in their polls, or at least they're not doing it publicly. They're not saying that they believe that this is a thing that's going to affect them. I don't know if they are behind closed doors, Charlie, are they? Uh... How scared are they of Bernie Sanders? You know, probably. No, of uh, the sentiment that Sanders is um, tapping into, tapping oh. into, right? And how that's going to affect them in a fight with Donald Trump. Yeah, I, I don't think that anyone who has come out of the establishment, fought through the establishment political wars, really knows what to make of what's in the uh, bloodstream right now, in the political bloodstream, because we've never seen anything like this before. Uh, I don't think that my own sense is I don't think they know how to handle uh, this kind of force, this element, this force of nature like Donald Trump. I mean, when I look at the attacks that they're making, the Clinton campaign on Donald Trump right now, to me, they seem pretty lame. And, you know, they're hitting him, uh, you know, all we see week after week is, you know, Donald Trump has a bad record on women. Well, that is not going to be effective enough. 
it's not going to grab hold of the news cycle and I don't think reflects the realities of where Trump is really connecting with people. Well, you know, and I, th I think that's going to take some time to evolve again, right? It's, you know, we've got six months for them to, to kind of test drive. We've got, uh, I think, waiting in the wings. Uh, Ken, you may know the exact number, but we, we have a rather large amount of uh, Priorities USA money kind of waiting to be to be dropped on on Donald Trump's head and not, not in a good way. Uh, just, you know, test driving these various attacks that uh, Republican groups, our principles pack, and the, these Stop Trump folks uh, used against him to uh, not really to too much effect during the Republican primary, but which uh, groups like Ace Metrics, a, a private company that does ad analytics, uh, both political and non, actually tested. Uh, you know, these our principles ads didn't do so well all that often with Republicans, but they did really well with Democrats oh, and Independents. That's you know, especially there was that really famous ad that they that they put out, probably or infamous, whichever way you want. It, it just featured uh, a bunch of women reading off comments that Donald Trump had made about women, and it was actually one of the worst testing ads among Republican primary voters that Ace Metrics had looked at. But it was one of the highest testing overall mm -hmm. because Democrats and Independents reacted to it so viscerally. I think the problem that the consultants always have and the campaigns always have is they're always fighting the last war. And this is a, an election where I don't think you can use that kind of tactic, the kind of tactics that worked in 2012 or 2008 or 2004. I think you have to throw them out the window in an election like this. And if you're Hillary Clinton, maybe you just go with a straightforward competency argument, you know, play to her strengths. Yeah, I think and that, that's going to be really interesting to watch uh, work out over the next few months. The The really big one of the really big keys to how Donald Trump got this far through the Republican primary is that he he brought new voters in. He expanded the electorate. It's it's you know he's talking this week about how he doesn't want to uh, have a big data operation. How you know he's going to be really continuing to focus on these big rallies as the cornerstone of his campaign. It might be a little more difficult for him to achieve that in a general election. We'll have to wait and see. All right, that's it for us. Thank you, Scott Bland. Thank you very much. Thank you, Eli Stokel. Thanks. Ken Vogel. Fun time as always. And Charlie Matessian. Thanks, Kristen.